0: I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm recording from and pay my respects to the Kamaragul people and their elders, past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from. Hello and welcome to the SBS Book Club. My name is Sarah Malik and today's guest is Gudinji Wakaya author Deborah Dank with We Come From This Place, a book that has been labelled a jewel to rival Australia's great desert memoirs. Spanning different timelines, it tells the story of Deborah's own upbringing as a stockman's daughter and life in the bush, as well as her father's soda story. Side by side with the brutality of frontier violence, the book also tells the dreaming stories of her people and is a soaring and powerful ode to spiritual connections to land, country and ancestors. Deborah's debut work won a record four awards last year at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Welcome to the show, Deborah.
1: Thank you, Sarah. That sounds pretty amazing. And to be associated with, I think, the stories that are contained with this is a privilege, but uh, also absolutely a deep reflection of, of the family and the country and the community that I've come from it's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's such a deep, powerful and incredible book. What did it feel like
1: to win four awards last year? Oh, I I didn't quite believe it and I think to an extent I'm still kind of trying to process. Uh, we, we Come With This Place is, uh, it's just such a central story to Angie Wakaya living and practice so the extraordinary risks um, has been has been phenomenal deeply deeply honored but also vindication I think to and I don't like this word resilience but vindication and acknowledgement of the longevity the the practice the the absolute attention to details that allowed our living uh, within our space and our place. So it's it's phenomenal to have won uh, what it has won. Oh, amazing,
0: Deborah. And, you know, for you, this book emerged out of a PhD thesis.
1: Can you tell us about that? I've always been a reader and I've always been deeply curious about belonging and being so... As I grew into a mum, as I evolved as an educator, I was always conscious of looking at what was going on with and across the community that I was part of. So as a teacher, I was... I was very keenly interested in what was being experienced by my students and there were things happening with my non-Aboriginal students that were really quite different to what was happening for my Aboriginal students and these little miscommunication events that would happen quite regularly. I got to the point where my children were starting to be seen within a deficit framing Uh, as these other Aboriginal students of mine had been framed and presented to me. And and I couldn't see the deficit. So I I became quite curious about what was going on because what was happening had happened to me as well. I was quite successful as a student when my mother was my teacher. But when I had a teacher from a different language background there were a whole lot of things that that teacher or those teachers had assumed were deficit and needed to be solved and be fixed. So I watched very, very carefully and then I realised that we were constantly, we as Aboriginal people, including those students of mine, we were constantly being filtered through non-Aboriginal devices through non-Aboriginal definitions, through definitions and languages that had grown away from this country. And so the PhD was about the idea of how polyphony operated within my community. And so polyphony means uh, many voices. Within my community, it's normal to hear many, many voices across our country, to hear voices from our non-human kin. So they are all part and parcel of who we are as Aboriginal Australians, but they also participate and contribute to the big stories across our lives. So that's where the... uh, PhD grew from. And the book is
0: non-linear with these episodes, this mosaic of vivid episodes with non-human characters, including the creation story of the water women who emerge from the salt water, the stories of your ancestors, colonization, you and your dad's story. And you get this feeling that it's all connected. Was this a deliberate thing for you to situate us into the book in this way, with this kind of First Nations understanding of time and space and country, which is very different to a Western linear way of understanding it.
1: Quite early within that process, my supervisor was wise enough to recognise the importance and the significance that narrative played in responding to my research question. Antonia suggested that I include some of the narratives to actually illustrate some of what I was thinking and that kind of grew from a number of paragraphs here and there to be included in what was essentially to be a full research um, thesis to becoming a practice-led thesis and so I didn't set out to write a book. I simply wrote the stories as they occurred to me and This non-linear kind of classification, again, it's one of those non-Aboriginal, if you like, classifications that are attributed or ascribed, sorry, to us because the way that we tell stories, the way that we operate, the way that we recall stories, that's a natural, normal kind of process. You know, I have an aunt who if I speak to her on the phone, we might be talking about fishing and the conversation might end with, okay, then, well, we're going down the creek to catch a fish. And the phone's gone silent. And then a couple of weeks time, the phone rings and I say, hi, it's Deborah. Well, we went down the creek, we caught three barramundi, you know. So this kind of weaving and tangled narrative that does go back and forth. It's absolutely part of that process of uh, being part of the broader and the bigger community.
0: You talk about how you inherited a love of reading from your mother and um, a love of country and culture from your dad. Could you tell us a bit about that fusion and your relationship to books and stories as a kid, you know, in the bush.
1: Sarah, I don't know if it was love right at the beginning. I think because my my mum taught me correspondence for a lot of my childhood. So I was a, a distance education student with the Brisbane Correspondence School, the precursor to Distance Ed. It became about escaping to other places. It became about learning about other people because I lived on the margins, if you like. I lived on the peripheral, kind of greater mainstream Australian community. And the only access I had to that other community was through books. So I had my mum teaching me, and that was always about accessing Western space. But my parents were both amazingly wise people in understanding that it couldn't be one-sided. It needed to be a lot more holistic. And like I have tried to do with the the writing down of our stories, my parents understood that there was a very real need for me to understand where I came from as a good angiwaka person. So it was about providing the balance that would uh, sustain a sense of self as I navigated my way through the Western space and the reading just grew to be a genuine love and uh, you know to feed that that curious kid that still lives inside of me because there's always a book to be read. (laughs) (laughs) And is it true that your mom used to put
0: books in your swag? (laughs)
1: Absolutely true. There was a place called Wanada, and it's on the on the Queensland Northern Territory border in the territory, and it's the place where one of the stations that my dad worked on would set up a stock camp and process cattle, and we'd go out to Wanada. And I remember particularly getting into bed one night, and you know these books they were always jabbing us in bed and my darling dad never ever once growled or moaned or groaned about the books because the poor man had just gotten so used to them being around and yes he didn't ever read or write english and was always considered to be illiterate but he spoke three of our languages so he was so far from being illiterate it was it's ridiculous but of course, I still see Aboriginal people who uh, come from, where he comes from, being classified as illiterate, and these big judgments made about capacity for complex thinking and, you know, ideas about intelligence being made around a person's competence in standard Australian English. And it's a very erroneous kind of thinking. I had these amazing people as my parents who were both, as I was growing, committed to teaching me the breadth and the fullness of what reading actually is, not just books.
0: I think that's what's so beautiful about your book because so much of what we read in here is filtered through the white gaze, which is this deficit gaze. And your book is told through the First Nations lens and it's such a strength based book. It's such an ode to First Nations spirituality and ecology and ways of being and ways of loving. And, but it doesn't shirk away from also the realities of colonial violence and the colonial violence that your father experienced as well, you know, on a cattle station, witnessing the assault of his mother and then as a young man forced off that cattle station and surviving a perilous journey on foot to Queensland after being accused of stealing livestock. And that's a horrific and traumatic experience that he he has to survive. How did you find out these hidden family secrets and stories and decide to kind of weave them as part of this book?
1: My family, uh, like others, you know, we have we all have those skeletons somewhere, whether they're in the closet or, or hanging behind the door. I think I'd always wondered why dad uh, could in seconds become really quite violent because You know, 95% of the time he was this amazing father who, you know, he was nothing but nurturing and something would happen and he would turn into this other person that I didn't recognise. My dad had been paid in tobacco as a child. Neither of my parents had ever touched alcohol. There was no alcohol in my family. So I didn't understand where that violence came from. And one day there was a big fight and and he told us. He told us what had happened. It was really a, a quite a profound and but but growing, very, very growing moment. I couldn't kind of not grow with that and I understood for the first time that my parents were people beyond me. My parents just did not, uh, you know, exist in the world as my mother and my father, that they had lives and stories outside of and beyond mine, but that their stories were absolutely intertwined with my own. And those stories from... My dad's past particularly and stories from my mum's past had continued to have really significant impacts in our in those current lives. Uh, my dad played in a band and we were at an event one night and a non-Aboriginal man approached us and he said, I want to apologize to your father. And I said, Why? and he said my father did truly awful awful things to him and his family and i i knew in that moment that if he'd stayed and attempted to deliver that apology then you know there'd be awful awful things so i told him he needed to leave that you know my father did not need his apology and perhaps my father did but it was not the time nor the place to deliver that apology and it was a while after that we told dad about that and he said I don't want anything to do with him or his apology uh, because what they did to my family was worse than how they treated the horses and the cattle. So, you know, those really big violent histories that we now in contemporary Australia like to imagine are in the far distant past are absolutely not in the past. They continue to reverberate loudly and strongly within too many Aboriginal communities. So this notion of truth-telling is critically important for all of us because within my work, at universities, I talk about the genocide and the stolen generation and I talk about all of those awful, awful things that occurred to us. But I am not allowed to talk about who did them to us because it upsets others. Uh, So, you know, we continue to have this one-sided conversation about the trauma and the horror but we don't have a truthful, balanced conversation about it was done to us, not by us, but it was done to us. And it's not about laying blame. It's not about asking anyone to feel guilty. It's absolutely asking everybody to participate in a more truthful conversation about our shared very recent past and the impact that it continues to have so um yeah it's you know it it kind of befuddles me to no end that we always talk about stolen generations you know we talk about the half-caste but we don't talk about how those babies were born to be half-caste it's a conversation that needs to be had
0: And that sexual violence is something that you depict in a very frank and matter-of-fact way, that this was a almost uncommented-upon reality on these stations. Mm -hmm. And there's a paragraph, they tied in their belts and straightened moleskin pants and shared an evil noise that might be called laughter. As a group, they turned to strut back to the main house on the station, back to where their women, sipping sherry, talked about the difficulty of training blacks to be reliable workers and pretended not to notice the births of half-caste children. And your own father was a lighter-skinned child, and this was this knowledge that these were the children of the station managers who had assaulted and raped the women on their station as a matter of entitlement. Mm. How important was it for you to label this violence?
1: It was so critically important to do that for my grandmother, She deserved her truth to be told, just like we honour the truth told by non-Aboriginal women now when they experience that violence. And not all relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people were violent, but too many were. And so for my grandmother's sake, there was no way that I couldn't talk about what her experience had been because she deserved that same respect and that same honouring of her experience. It was really difficult to put that down because, as I said, I was writing this for my children and so it was a way of telling my daughters what had happened to their great-grandmother but to also frame her in a way that was not a victim but to frame her in a way that showed the fuller facet of her being.
0: So spirituality, family and story, they're great strengths in this book. Would you say that that was what helped you not only survive but thrive?
1: Those things are just basic characteristics within my community. I was raised absolutely to understand that The world did not revolve around me. The world revolved around communities and I had a responsibility to play within my community to sustain that community. I think the idea of Aboriginal spirituality is absolutely part and parcel of the relationship that we have with country because we are so very aware that our livelihoods literally depend on our engagement with country and if we are wise around taking care of country then country will absolutely take care of that it will give back everything that we give to our country so the idea of you know of the abuse of of country the abuse of natural resources the accumulation of resources for and by individuals is something that's so absolutely foreign I it I you know it doesn't it doesn't make sense f- for anybody to do that because there's nothing community driven about accumulation
0: so that spirituality is so deep and powerful for you and it's almost a matter of fact reality for you and your community like that's just how you see the world
1: absolutely you know my my children from when they were little tinies learning to walk, were always told by their grannies to walk soft, to don't thump, thump and stomp because others were always around. And so, you know, I was talking to someone the other day in our, our house now, which is a really old house and it's quite wobbly and it creaks all the time, uh, I I don't hear my children walking around in our house because they walk gently, they walk softly because that's how they were raised to walk. And it, it is about the walking, but that walking is absolutely about the respecting of the past and the respecting of the past is always about ensuring the safety and the ongoingness of a future as aboriginal communities across australia we have been defined through a language that grew somewhere else we have been defined and you know tried to be explained through definitions that were grown by somebody else in a different cultural context. And I think it's an amazing act of arrogance to assume that those definitions can exist within the Aboriginal context without some adjustments being made. Across the breadth of humanity, I think we share so many experiences, but the detail of those experiences have to be acknowledged in their difference because we have all grown in quite different uh, geographic environments and cultural spaces. So we have to be tweaking some of those big ideas within the human condition because if they fit us all, we would be one single culture right around the world. and That, that would be quite boring, so, <laughs> wouldn't it, Deb? <laughs> it would be amazingly boring. It would be.
0: <laughs> I mean, like speaking of like not boring, I mean, you didn't write your PhD in an office staring at your computer. You wrote this on country. Like this was an embodied
1: experience. Can you tell us about how you wrote this book? <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky enough to get a scholarship. With Deakin University, and I thought, right, I'm going to go home for six months. Home is ten hours southeast of Darwin, very remote. So Rick and I packed the troopy with um we bought a little generator because I had to take the laptop with me. And w- where home is, we have no phone coverage. so, you know, electricity is always by generator if we have electricity. So we packed up this little the little generator and swag and of course books and the laptop and off we went and we set up our camp near a river and we would catch Majigar overnight and I'd eat them for breakfast, at the freshwater crayfish in the creek. And then I We would walk in the afternoon. In the mornings, when it was cool, I would write. And I thought it was going really, really well because I got into this rhythm of writing and this beautiful little black and white bird. When it first came and started to dance around my feet, I was really quite scared because in my community, that bird is a messenger bird and it brings messages that are often sad. So When it first came, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't going good. This is a bit of a worry. Um, But then it, it kept on coming and then my aunt said, it's okay, sometimes that bird just wants to hang around and be with you and it'll tell its own stories. And so for the six months, that bird, probably maybe four times across a week, would come and just dance at my feet. And... I know now what that bird was telling me. That bird was telling me, for goodness sake, Deborah, what you are writing is so beyond boring, it's not funny, because I was diarising. Got up this morning, there were two majiga in the trap. We cooked them, but I don't have any lemon left, so it was just salt. Went for a walk yesterday, we're out for four hours. It was just really boring, boring diarising. But The thing that that boring diarising did for me that was so very important was to really flick the switch and it really made me become a lot more conscious of being at home. It became a lot easier to hear those stories and it became a lot more obvious where all the non-human kin were. So that really boring diarising process enabled me to actually be conscious of shifting into my own space and to leave that PhD process behind. So it's not all happy lala. It's absolutely really big and frightening and scary and threatening, but there is something that is so genuinely strengthening and warming and genuinely feeding of the heart and the soul when as an Aboriginal person you are on your country. It's it's absolutely indescribable. My kids and I always saying how much we can breathe when we are at home. So that connection to country, it can't ever be underestimated.
0: It's such a life-affirming book. There are scenes where you feel like you understand what it means to be fed by nature, like just this energy, especially some of the scenes around the fire and eating all that delicious food that's just been s- melting in all those juices. And I mean, f- for you especially, is it just like when can I get out there again?
1: Oh, totally, totally. I have a range of barbecues just to try to replicate the taste, (laughs) you know, down here. Because I I live on Gubby Gubby country and it is magnificent and it's amazing and it has nurtured me and my kids. But it's, it's not home in the way that home is home. When I talk to family up there and they've said, we've got barramundi or we've gone out and we've got some beef and, I can smell the fire, I can smell the food, <laughs> I can taste the food and I can't speak because my mouth is watering so much, you know, imagining that I'm there. So when we do get home, it's it's always about food, it's always about being back out bush on country, checking in with the non-human kin, what have you got for us, you know, are the berries happening you know what have we got for food what have you got to gift us
0: <laughs> well we could smell the food and our mouths were salivating too as readers so thank you for that for um giving us that longing and yearning as well <laughs> i think that is important for readers to know that it is such a joyous and uplifting book and a really special book i think those moments of levity and also that you know you're depicting some of the horrors but also within that there is this dual reality of there's this harshness but then there's also a lot of kind people that you meet including you mm. know the Corbett's your, your, your dad worked for these station managers who were so deeply kind and you were so surprised <laughs> by that kindness of of the Corbett's <laughs> who treated you like family and it helps um. you realize there's always choices that we
1: make to be cruel or to be kind. Yes, absolutely. You know, the, the Corbett's were, um, and the Corbett's remained great friends with my parents throughout their lives. So, uh, you know, both of, both Mr. and Mrs. Corbett have passed away now, but I'm still in contact with their eldest son. We were talking last year about, uh, there are so very few people who know where we grew up and experienced our childhood. And Mr and Mrs Corbett were just genuinely gorgeous people they you know their priorities were about living and enjoying and and living good lives and so that's what we got to do when we were on oban you know my mum was so embarrassed for so long after i'd gone across to the to the butcher shop and collected half of the bullock that had just been killed because I didn't know that this man was serious when he said, you know, come over and get get some meat for the family for tonight, Deborah. And um, so I just, I wanted to just see how serious he was. And every single item of meat that I pointed to, Mr. Corbett gave to me. And so I was kind of horrified throughout that process. But it was a journey that I'd started. And so, Sarah, I couldn't stop, could I? (laughs) I, You know, I was like, oh my goodness, what have I done? But he and Mrs. Corbett were just genuinely beautiful people. We went to an event at a neighbouring station once and the people, the manager on the neighbouring station wouldn't let us into a, a building. And so, Mr. and Mrs. Corbett said, well, that's fine, we'll all pack up and we'll all go home because we've come here as a family. And it was only after they did that that the neighbouring station manager said, oh, oh, no, 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 there's been a misunderstanding, you know, it's okay, it's okay. You know, they can stay there in that building. Without the goodwill of people like the Corbett's, without their insistence on acting on their principles." You know, my life at Oban would be incredibly different, but it was nothing but joy. It was still hard because living out bush in remote places is hard. It's really difficult. But the Corbett's were actually people, you know, there's that lovely lovely saying that bad things happen when good people do nothing or some such thing. And the Corbett's actually always did something. There are just so many scenes
0: which I feel like they do offer that hopefulness and especially your mother who, you know, she grew up in also some really harsh environments where, you know, her and her community lived in like these hot metal boxes that were provided and not really intended for humans. And she went to a school that was patrolled by men with guns who would shoot pet dogs who followed kids to school, but there was also Mr. Matheson who was that teacher who inspired her to become a teacher herself and then she inspired you to become a teacher. There's this harshness but then there's also these individual kindnesses which really kind of add up and can change people's lives, these interactions.
1: Yeah, she didn't inspire me to become a teacher. She told me that I had to. (laughs) Fortunately, my (laughs) mum knows me better than I know myself. But I also had the privilege of meeting Mr Matheson as as a teacher and he was Director General of the Queensland Department of Education. I was delivering a a seminar and um, he came up to me afterwards. I didn't realise who he was. And so I was quite happy and confident around delivering this seminar. And afterwards, he came up to me and said, you know, who are you? Where have you come from? And when I said wheel," he just looked at me. He burst out laughing. He, he pointed to me and he says, halt, you are a halt. And I said, well, my mother was a halt. And he said, yeah, Maxine and so i thought that was pretty amazing that this man could find my mother uh in me and and again that was an amazing privilege but an amazing responsibility to kind of uphold that kind of identity of of hers around you know what what she represented and personified um within a, a learning space so Yes, it was really nice.
0: (laughs) That's such a special experience. And also, now you being in this position to inspire and gift that to other kids who are going to be inspired by your work and and the gift that you're giving them through this story. It's just, it must be an, an incredible full circle moment now as an educator to provide the kinds of works that I guess you wish that you had growing up?
1: I, I was really lucky and I have had a really beautiful um, experience as a, as a teacher and I have worked hard to have been able to work across many, many different parts of Australia, um, remote schools, urban schools, rural schools, primary schools and high schools, you know, as class, classroom-based uh, teacher, regional consultant. Um, I've been regional manager of Indigenous education on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. So a, a very rich and, and varied career where I have always been impressed by the value of people and how much we all learn from each other and And I hope that my students have learned a little bit from me because I've certainly learned from them. Because this book is
0: kind of an an education. And and do you feel like it's an extension of your work with the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, which is something you're a part of? Like, is that an extension of your desire to empower communities and empower young people to realise the value and the worth in who they are and their own culture, as well as kind of giving them the tools to kind of engage in different worlds as well?
1: I think so. I think I have always been really conscious of where I come from. I come from remote and I didn't often see any recognition of the lived experience of people in remote places, Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal. Every now and then I'd see non-Aboriginal representation in remote places, but very rarely Aboriginal experience. When I had the opportunity to establish the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, I thought, I thought that these people were really strange, that they would pay me to drive around to remote community and talk with people in those places. And I was um, the literacy development facilitator with the Fred Hollows Foundation and was tasked with establishing what was a project um, into it becoming a foundation. And uh, Susie Wilson, uh, the woman who came up with this idea that remote students and families in remote places needed access to literature. And Susie Wilson is is a phenomenal woman. She's a bookseller in Brisbane, Riverbend Books. She had these and still has these amazing contacts across the book industry in Australia. So there was really good support for the idea of establishing what has now become the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. But I was given the task of coming up with what this thing would look like. So I drove around to and spoke with and genuinely consulted with a whole host of different remote communities. I knew from my perspective, having grown in remote places, what literature, what processes, what um, programs would have gifted me, you know, greater access to Western education settings, communities, Uh, but I wanted to make sure that it was about remote community and not just my imagining. So Book Supply was absolutely part of that and then I thought well we need to start with children because when I was a child I remember I, I, I think I've been able to read since I was about four and so that was important. So I set up that And then the next thing, someone said to me, well, how do we get children to read? And I didn't understand why they were confused about that, because for me, it was simply a matter of, well, give them something they want to read. And for Aboriginal children in remote places, it's books that they write themselves in their own language because all of us, whether we speak our own language, non-English, or whether we speak English, we all want to just see ourselves within that literature. So I established those three different parts of the Program and and they are still what the Indigenous Literacy Foundation work evo- uh, revolves around. I love it. You've created a movement, Deborah. Thank you for your for your
0: work, for your contribution, for your energy and passion. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you, Sarah. I've really appreciated your interest, and um, yeah, really lovely, lovely yarn. And yeah, I I hope people continue to read and to feel and to find their place within our story. Thank you.
0: And that's all for us on the SBS Book Club podcast. Hope you've enjoyed the books and interviews as much as I have. I'd love you to follow, share, rate or review the podcast if you're enjoying it. You can share your own thoughts and picks with the hashtag SBS Club. Thank you for following and bye for now.